great singing this evening. So we are uh, on this this night of our Sunday night uh, rotation, just to give you a quick reminder of what we're doing tonight. Um, this is sort of a review uh, or an opportunity for stuff that I didn't get to talk about in our Sunday morning services to sort of bring up uh, something about that that I maybe thought would be helpful for us to dive into a little bit. And I uh, have something regarding the sermon this morning. So if you thought it was long as it was, there was still something else I wanted to maybe delve into a little bit deeper this evening. And if we have time for that, uh, we will do that. But the main thing that uh, this this first Sunday sort of serves to help us with is dealing with your questions and or dealing with your questions and seeking to give some biblical answers to some of those things. So uh, Ben has a mic there that he can uh, hand out to anybody who has a question. So if you have a question, raise your hand and we got one right over there. That's that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> okay, I am reading um, Genesis. Mm -hmm. Genesis one. Um, this is when God is creating man. And mm -hmm. he said, let us, us make man in our image after our likeness. Who is us and our? Okay, so who is us and who is our? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you're looking at Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26. And so uh, the question there, um, again, I'll go ahead and read the passage uh, in its entirety and... Um, I'll read down through verse 27 in particular so that we can have some context of what's going on here. Uh, so after God has created everything else on the face of the earth, he says this, Then God said, Let us, plural, make man in our image after our, plural, likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, singular, well, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. So God created man in his singular own image. In the image of God, he, singular, created them, male and female, he created them. So the question that uh, Bonnie is bringing up is, who is the um, R or uh, the us in this passage? Um, now, when we understand what the Bible describes or how the Bible describes God, it describes how many true gods. How many true gods are there? There's one true God. Uh, but yet when we come here to Genesis chapter 1, it seems like there is a plural group used in the creation of particularly humanity. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So what is going on here? Are, is there one God or are there multiple gods? How, how do we understand this uh, particular issue? And so what I want us to do is I want us to first look at this from the way that a, um, let's say, someone in Israel that is receiving these books from the first time from Moses would look at this. How would they look at or understand what Moses is saying here? And then in particular, I want us to give some more enlightenment about how the New Testament helps us to sort of really understand the full meaning of what's going on here uh, in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27. And to do this, I think it's important for us to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all right? Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I just want to point out something that um, would that would seem, that, that sort of helps us with understanding this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, by the way, 
Uh, you know that this is the first mention of baseball in the Bible, right? In the big inning. So, oh, sorry. They're very bad, very bad joke. You know, tennis is also mentioned in the Bible uh, when Moses served in Pharaoh's courts. Uh, so there's that one. Not even, a, not even a courtesy laugh on that one. And of course, you know, the, one, of the, one of the shortest, you know, we think of the shortest people in the Bible being um, Zacchaeus, you know, he was a wee little man, um, but, uh, and that's just the song, I don't think the Bible actually says he was a wee little man, that's the song that we sang, but he was, he was short of stature, uh, but really the, the shortest man, some people say it's Nehemiah, Nehemiah, uh, but really it's uh, Zachariah who stood on his watch, uh, he was the shortest guy in scripture, so. Still no courtesy laughs. I guess I've, I guess I've, 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 uh, I've, I've worn those out. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The, the term that's used in the underlying language here, Hebrew, is what Moses wrote in. Um, the term that's used here for God is the term Elohim. And that term, Elohim, is a plural term. So when you see God, particularly in, um, in the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, um, not when you see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, um, you will see this term God. It will either be referring to Elohim or Adonai. Um, Elohim uh, is the term that's used here, and it refers to, it is a plural term that's used here. Now, how does that jive with the idea that, um, that there is one God? I think it's important to first of all note that translators do not say, in the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. There's a reason why they don't do that. Because the term Elohim, while it is a plural term, it refers to a singular person. Now, why would that be? Why would we have a plural term referring to a singular person? How do we understand that in particular here in this passage? And this is where we would look at and understand what is said in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. We have God, Elohim, creating the heavens and the earth. We have him there. But what we don't see, uh, what we don't see mentioned here, or, or what, I'm sorry, what we do see additionally added to this is that there is the Spirit of God. So what, what's going on here? And th this helps us to really understand what we believe as the, Trini the tr doctrine of the Trinity. All right? when we look, and this is something we started looking at uh, on Wednesday evenings as we're going through the questions and answers that the kids are working through. Um, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there is no God but the one God. There is no God but one, and that one God is the God of Scripture. There is no God but one. And this God who created in the beginning is singular, but yet this God exists in three persons. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of the three persons of the Trinity make up the singular God that we have here. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, where we see the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, hovering over the face of the waters. So how, how many gods created the world? One God. But that one God is revealed in Scripture as having three persons. 
And then notice how does God create? We see this in verse 3. And God what? Said. He spoke. His word was the thing that was used to bring about creation. And if we were to turn to Genesis or to Genesis, John chapter 1, in many ways, the genesis of the New Testament, it tells us in the beginning was the what? Word. The word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, by this word. And it hearkens us back to what's being said here in Genesis chapter 1. God said, God said, the word, let there be light. Now, it's even more interesting here because there's some subtle indications in the Hebrew that's used here to help us understand this, particularly when we compare it with another passage of Scripture. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is the Song of Moses. This is a, uh, a hymn or a psalm that Moses sings in praise to God for what he's done in delivering his people from the Egyptians and providing them a, a place to go into. Remember, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And so as Israel stands on the brink of entering into Canaan, uh, God and, and moves upon Moses to reiterate or to give the law a second time so that they would remember the covenant that God had made with his people. And so he's describing who God is. And we see that he is the only God that is. He is, in verse 4, a rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And he goes and talks about how God is the, is the one who has been there from the beginning. There was no one else that existed but him before time began. He created all things. Um, and then verse 9, he says, But Yahweh's portion are his people. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, how is it that God brings about or, or has this group of people? And this is what we see in verse 10. He found him... Jacob, in particular referring to God calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he found him in a desert land. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, the Lord encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And then the significant thing is what's here in verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Now you say, what does this have to do with Genesis chapter 1? Well, that term that flutters over his young, it is the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 to speak of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Now, why is that significant? Because it's not just that the Spirit is sort of um, ethereally um, sort of levitating over the world that existed in that day. But when we combine it with the meaning that we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 32, it gives us a, a, a better understanding of what the Spirit's role was in creation. That, that what he sought to do was not just to be there, but he was actually making sure that what was happening would come forth in the same way that an eagle will look over or a bird will look over its nest. And as the, as the, as the children, the children, as the, the chicks, I guess, are all birds chicks when they're babies? I don't know. 
As the baby birds are born, um, that mother stands there and, and cares for them. It watches over them. It makes sure that they're okay. It brings them out and seeks to care for them. And so when we combine the spirit hovering with this idea, it helps us to understand the spirit's activity in creation. And so what we find going on here in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is we see hinted at all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, involved in creation. The Father is the one who is directing all things. God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. The Son is the instrument by which God uses to accomplish His work. He spoke the Word brought about all things. In fact, we see this, if you want to turn very quickly to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we see very clearly there, or we could look at Colossians chapter 1 as well. That, that would also be appropriate for us. But Hebrews chapter 1. I usually have that, uh, I thought I'd put my bookmark there, because usually I'm there faster than you guys, but I didn't have my bookmark there. Uh, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He, what? Created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In Colossians chapter 1, it speaks very similarly of the fact that Christ is the preeminent one, that all things came about through his uh, working. And so when we see God speaking, it refers to the word. John tells us the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is through the Son that all things are created. But yet the Spirit was also involved and is specifically pointed out in Genesis chapter 1 as hovering or, or being there to complete or to bring to perfection, to bring to completion that which God had brought about. So now understanding that, when we turn to Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, and when God says, let us make man in our image, Who is the us referring to there? The singular God, but it's referring to the plurality of his persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, So that's a a great question because you're not expecting that when you're reading on here, especially when, when you understand that the Bible presents there being one God, and yet you have these plural words being used there. Now, the Old Testament believer would likely not have put all of that together. Um, they would have noticed that the term used for God uh, here, Elohim, is a plural verb and, or plural noun, and they probably would have thought different things about that. They wouldn't have had the full grasp of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For them, it was a mystery as to how there can be one God yet referred to in plural terms. But 
Thankfully, we are the um, recipients of the New Testament. We have further revelation that helps us to understand that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that answer your question for you? Yeah. All right, good. Great question. Who else has a question? Debbie. Well, wait until you get the mic. You need the mic. <laughs> well, make it bigger. Okay. Can there we you, go. You can. Oh, yeah, you can. <laughs> okay. I have a, I don't know, what a huge curiosity. Okay. Which I'm surprised hasn't gotten me in trouble yet. Because okay. I'm curious about everything. Okay. Where did God come from? Where did God come from? That's a great, that's a great question. I mean, he had to come out of something, but where? Well, why did he have to come out of something? Hold the mic on your mouth. What? <laughs> you're, you're using your hands, and the mic's not picking it up. So. <laughs> no, no, no. I've always been curious about that. You know, I believe in him, and you know, everything. Right. It's just where did he come from? He right. had to start from something. Okay. So it's interesting you make that statement. He had to start from something. Um, I think we all naturally think that way because we all have a beginning, right? We started from something. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God never started. He has always been. In fact, what we just read in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, the way that that is laid out there is that it assumes his existence before anything else existed. He is the what we call, from a philosophical standpoint, the unmoved mover. He is the one who brings all things about, but nobody brought him about. And here would be the problem if God had a beginning or if God came from something. Because if God came from something, then the thing that he came from, would it not be greater than him? I don't know, but no, just, how can he just appear? Well, he didn't just appear. He just always was. So, so this is one of the mysteries of understanding what the Bible describes about God. I don't understand it either. This is, this is one of the things about, about God that's described in Scripture that boils my brain pan every time I think too much about it and I get a headache. Um, and I think part of it is because we are tied to time. We all have a beginning. Um, and, and that makes it hard for us to conceive of a being that had no beginning. Uh, but the Scriptures talk about how God was from before the foundations of the world, before anything was created, he was making choices to save his people. Um, but that before anything existed, he was. So he has no, no beginning. He exists outside of creation. Everything is created by him, but he himself is not a creature. He has no beginning. And, of course, he has no end. Um, the scriptures talk about how he is the eternal one, the everlasting one. Um, and that, everla that idea of everlasting, we tend to think of that as just going forward for all eternity. But everlasting has the idea of also going, going backward with no beginning. Now, do I understand that? No. Does anyone here understand that? You say, I, I got to figure it out. No, we can accept it. It's what the Bible says, but we don't necessarily fully understand it. And this, this is one of the mysteries of God. And one of the things that I've mentioned before is, you know, Jesus says that eternal life is to know the only true God. 
Why does, why, is it, why does it take eternal life to know God? Because to know an infinite being takes an infinite amount of time. And so, you know, I'll be honest, I don't even know if we're, you know, in the, in the, in the ages of eternity to come, I still don't know that we're going to fully understand that because we will always be created beings. So every single one of us will always have a beginning. We celebrate our birthdays, Right? We look, oh, this is when I was born. This is when I began. Which, by the way, I don't know why we celebrate ourselves on our birthdays. We really should be celebrating our mothers because they're the ones who had to agonize <laughs> with us coming into the world. But, but in reality, we all have a beginning, and we're tied to that so much so that we think about that every year on our birthday. But God has no beginning. And the Bible assumes his existence in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible makes it abundantly clear he has no beginning. And it's, it's important for us to keep in mind that God is not like us. That's, that's extremely important. Uh, he is wholly other than us. So I may not answer your question. It doesn't answer my question either, but, it's yet, but that's what the Bible describes. All right? Good question. Who else has a question? Nobody else has any questions? If a tree falls in the forest, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. All right, if there's no other questions, um, I wanted to spend just a little bit of time this evening discussing. The, no. There's just, there's just one more slide, so no, no other slides coming up. So, um, The last thing I want us to talk about is the Bible and our environment. Uh, and in particular, I, I thought that this was important for us in regards to something that was discussed this morning. Um, remember we talked about the judgment of God on the nations and how God is going to turn back creation and that creation is going to turn against mankind um, in the judgment that God brings upon the world. What should the Christian's attitude be towards the environment in which we live? Well, how should we as believers understand um, our, from lack of a better word, our ecology? So the term ecology refers to a system where things are interconnected, and we live in a world that is interconnected. We're dependent upon this world, and this world is dependent upon us in many ways. So how, how are we to think about um, the world that God has created and placed us in? Well, so I hope you have your Bibles ready and you, you got your wrists ready because we're going to be turning to several different passages this evening uh, to discuss this. And, and this, is, um, th this is, I like to say, this is my pre-PowerPoint preaching style of preaching. This is how, when before, I, before PowerPoint was around and we had projectors, Everybody had to turn to the passages. I couldn't just put it up on the screen. Uh, so, and I think it's a good exercise for us to be looking in our Bibles together. So we're still in, hopefully you're still in Genesis 1, and we're going to begin there uh, by, and there are just six things I want us to consider about this truth or how we're to understand um, creation. In Genesis chapter 1, um, verse 29, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, the first thing we're going to see about the world in which we live is that our environment is created for the glory of God and for the use of humanity. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. 
In fact, we'll begin in verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, after he created man in his own image, he blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over um, every uh, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given what? You. I've given mankind every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. So there's a clear indication that creation is created to sustain humanity. Now, one of the things we have to keep uh, clear here, and we'll talk about this in just a second, is there is a fundamental difference between us and every other created being on the face of this planet. And that difference is the image of God. God created everything. He created the, the, um, the solar systems. He created uh, the, the water, the seas, the land. He created the plants. He created all of the animals. And then he said, he paused and said, I'm going to make man. And man is going to be different than everyone else because man is made in my image. And so in doing that, there's a difference between humanity and everything else that is created. And so we recognize God gives them those things. Look in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. All right, this is further about what God is doing as he is creating um, and in fact, we'll begin in verse 5. Uh, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had ca not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So no notice that. Bef before, before God made these plants sprout up, he didn't do that because there wasn't anyone there to care for the land. There's a mist going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And then what does God do? He plants a garden in Eden. Right? He creates this garden uh, in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So there is a reality here about God creating these things for man. And then notice what he says. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's also interesting to note that this idea that man needs to work the ground, it implies a secondary level at which we are to look at creation. Yes, it's given to us to sustain us, but we are responsible for caring for it, for exercising special care over it. And in fact, if you turn to Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, and I think this is important for us to keep in mind as well. We often think about God creating all these things, all right, plants, animals, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, but there was, there's one thing that's often left out of that. We think of him even creating mankind. But what's, what, is the, what is the final thing that God creates? Rest. And he creates it in what particular form? A day. He gives us a day, a day known as the Sabbath. All right? Now notice what Jesus says about the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 
and 28. Now, again, the Pharisees, they're, you know, they're all making this big deal because Jesus is going and healing people on the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And so notice what he says. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for who? Man. Not man for the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so there's a principle there that as God is creating all these things, He's creating them for humanity. Now, God created ultimately to show His power and His greatness. Everything exists to praise the Lord. The psalmist talks about this over and over again. Let all things that have breath do what? Praise the Lord. Creation exists for God's glory, but it also exists for our use. We're called to use humanity. And then, secondly, this world that God has created and given to us for, He's created for His glory and given to us for our use, we yet are commanded to care for it or to exercise dominion over it. If you can turn back to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, we already saw God's command that mankind was supposed to work the ground, and that's why he didn't make anything at this point. There was no one to work the ground, but we see in particular a special care that humanity is to have over what God has created. Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. So there's that connection with there was no man there to work the ground, but then he adds on to that a secondary command. We're to work it and we're to what? Keep it. Now, this term keep, it has the idea of exercising great care. It is the idea of of taking that which is precious and making sure it is safe and provided for. The the same word is used of the Old Testament saint or the Old Testament priests, that as they were to work before the, the Lord, they were to keep the things that God had given in the tabernacle. Now, could you think of anything more important or more valuable than the things of the tabernacle where God would meet with his people. And yet that's the same level of care that God is calling humanity to exercise over these things. He also, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, tells them that man is to exercise dominion over the world. Again, we saw this, Genesis 1, 28. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So there is a clear um, order of creation that mankind has a ruling um, role over the world in which we live. Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth. Over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Mankind is to exercise dominion. God created Adam and Eve to be little um, monarchs. They are meant to be there as rulers, as kings and queens over what God has created. Now, what type of monarch are they supposed to be? Are they supposed to be the cruel, dictatorial, harsh monarchs who rule everything with an iron fist and only bring about the things that please them? No, that's not exercising care. Adam and Eve are commanded to exercise careful dominion. They're to provide what's needed for the world around them. Now, we know that that's God's intended purpose before sin enters the world. But then sin enters the world, 
And sin, as a result of mankind's sin, and mankind as the ruler of this world, his sin has consequences on the environment that Adam and Eve are placed into. Look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, because you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Creation is subjected to a curse because of mankind's sin. And as a result of that, there is no longer a peaceful, um, a peaceful relationship that humanity has with creation. Creation is cursed. It causes difficulty and hardship for humanity. Now, this world that has been cursed as a result of sin, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that it desires and yearns for the consummation of the redemption of the sons of God. It is languishing underneath the curse of humanity. And in fact, this difficulty between humanity and the environment in which they are placed is given to us for a purpose. Why do you think God cursed the earth? He could have done a number of things to curse Adam and Eve. And he, he does curse Eve in other ways. But why does he curse the earth? Because every day, Adam would have to go out into the field and he would have to work hard to provide for his family. Every day, he would experience the fallenness of this world and it would be a giant check engine, a giant red flag telling him sin is the problem. Why does this world not work the way it's supposed to? Sin is the problem. And throughout the scriptures, we find that God uses creation and this, um, this conflict between humanity and creation to remind us of the effects of sin. Again, we see this in creation's unyielding resistance to man's dominion. For thousands of years, the difficulty and toil needed to cultivate the earth constantly spoke, reminding mankind of their sin and calling them to find that there is only hope in one thing to deal with this problem, turning from their sin and turning to God, repentance and faith. You know, if you think about the first time that the world was judged in a worldwide event, what did God use to judge the world? He used a flood. He used natural forces. He used rain that came and deluged the world, bringing about, again, in the environment which mankind is supposed to be ruling and having dominion over. It comes and, by God's sovereign hand, wipes out humanity. 
the greatest natural disaster the world has ever seen, God chose to call humanity to repentance. I think there's also, throughout the Old Testament, other times where God uses, at various times, creation to call men to repentance. I think the greatest example of this, or one of the most clearest examples of this, are the plagues in Egypt. What are the things that are happening there in the plagues in Egypt? You know, how many of you like frogs? Nobody's, all right, some people like frogs. Would you like frogs in every inch of your house? No. What about locusts? How many of you like locusts? How would you like them everywhere? Um, There are a number of different, there's darkness. There's uh, water that turns rancid and turns into blood and is unable to be used there. There, God in, in his judgment upon Egypt uses creation and turns it against humanity to call them to repentance. You see this in other instances. For instance, um, remember the story of Balaam. We talked about that a little bit this morning. And Balaam is being called by the king of of Moab to curse Israel. And and he can't do that every time he speaks. Instead of cursing them, he he blesses them. But even before that all happens, he has this donkey that he's riding on. And the donkey keeps turning away from the path that he's going. And then finally they come to a place where they're between two walls. and, And the donkey doesn't go forward. It actually smashes his leg against the wall. And Balaam gets down and starts beating the donkey and saying, you stupid donkey, why are you doing this? And why is the donkey stopping? Because the donkey sees the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn to kill Balaam. And then God opens the mouth of the donkey. And he says, the donkey who's being beaten says, what are you doing to me? I'm trying to save you. Think about what God did in cursing or bringing judgment upon the um, unfaithful of his people in the wilderness. He sent them fiery serpents, snakes that came and bit them and caused all sorts of uh, difficulty. Throughout Scripture, we find that he brings natural disasters upon Israel, drought and famine, to call them to repentance. We see that throughout there's sickness and disease that is used, natural occurrences in the world. You realize that when you get sick... There is a virus that has come or there's a bacteria that has come and caused issues with your body. And that's the world fighting against the rulers of the world, those that are supposed to exercise dominion. Think about the story of Naaman. Naaman is stricken with leprosy. And and what we see there is he deals with a sickness. It's a message to call Naaman to repentance so that he can turn to the God of Israel and find hope. And then we see, in particular, God often uses natural disasters to bring about these things. In Mark chapter 13, verse 8, there's this interplay between um, the, the religious rulers of the day and Christ. And, and they ask him about uh, the evil actions of Pilate and going about and killing and mingling with his blood uh, the worshipers of the Lord. And then he talks about a, a disaster that happened, a, a tower that fell and killed people. And Jesus' response in those instances was, it's not for you to question why God brought this about. Rather, you need to repent and turn to me. 
In fact, take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. Because I think it's important for us to recognize God is not through having creation be used in this way to call us to repentance. Revelation 16. And we'll uh, begin in verse 8. This is the pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. Revelation 16, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. Right? We think global warming is bad now. It's going to be absolutely terrifying at this point. And how does humanity respond? And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel, verse 12, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. They're demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world and assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty, God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Verse 17, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And then this is what we have. The worst imaginable natural disaster from a storm that you can imagine. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. A great earthquake such as had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the na- cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they, does it say they repented and turned to the Lord? They cursed God for the plague of the hail. Because the plague was so severe. So there is a clear indication that there has been and continues to be an adversarial relationship between humanity and the world. Now, how do we process all of this? Should our response be, well, this world is, is going to do all these things to us, so let's just be a harsh ruler over it. And I will admit myself that perhaps at times I have been too cavalier about some of the comments I've made about how we should respond to this world. And 
I think what's helpful for us in all of this is to turn to Colossians chapter 1. So turn with me very quickly to Colossians chapter 1. You know, I really had the intention of letting you guys out of here early, but it's not going to happen. So Colossians chapter 1. I will, I will venture to get you out on time. Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20. For in Him, that's in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself, what are those next two words? All things, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There is a reality that this adversarial relationship with creation, that creation is used to bring about and to remind us of our sin, and that there is a, a, a difficulty in this world in which we live. All of those things find their true expression in how God redeems this fallen world. Everything, things on earth and things in heaven. Now, what does that mean? How do we live that out? And just very quickly, I think first we need to realize that we need to seek the glory of God in his creation. I'll have you tonight read Psalm 148. And there the psalmist speaks of the different aspects of creation. And he calls upon them to worship God. That this world in which we live exists to give God glory. And it still does so. Psalm 148, he says just very quickly, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him. And then he goes in and talks about the things that are created. Sun and moon, shining stars. Talks about that these things were created by God. He says that the, from the earth, the great sea creatures in the deep... Fire, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind, mountains and hills, tall trees and cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. They're all meant to praise the Lord. And so there is a goodness found in us going and praising the Lord for what he has done in this world. That Christ is redeeming all things on this earth so that you can go out and you can see a beautiful sunset and you can praise the Lord for that. It, it, it's remarkable to me how many times people will take pictures of rainbows and post them on, um, on social media. Praise the Lord for that. Not only is it a beautiful thing that he's done, but it's also a reminder of his promise that he will not destroy the world with a flood again. It's also a reminder that there will be a day where we, he will destroy the world with fire if we fail to repent and turn to him. So we can seek the glory of God in his creation. Secondly, remember we are made in the image of God. How do we reflect that image in this world in which we live in? We need to exercise dominion over this world through stewardship. We should not be cavalier about how we treat the environment that God has given us. We are originally created to care for it. And so we must care 
for it. We also have to recognize that creation itself is languishing because of us. Why do we have problems in the world in which we live today from natural disasters? Why is there such talk about the earth's warming and the difficulty that's going, that's going to bring? Rising sea levels and, and, and more severe weather patterns. Why does that happen? You know, there's this big debate um, is global warming caused by humanity or is it caused by natural causes? And I would say the Bible is pretty clear. The problems we have with global warming are caused by humans. Not necessarily our greenhouse gases, but our sin has caused the world to deal with these issues. Fourthly, I think it's helpful for us to realize that God's sovereignty and His purposes guide every natural event. Nothing happens in this world, in this created world, apart from God's purposes. Psalm 104, just I'll read the first four verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the winds of the wind, the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers, winds, his ministers, a flaming fire. And then he goes through and talks about how God guides all these natural occurrences. Fifthly, we should respond to the hardships that we experience in this world by creation, by self-examination and repentance. You know, I think we, this would really be helpful for us to catch this, particularly as we come up on the winter season here in the Pittsburgh area. Now, if you hear the forecasters, they say things aren't going to be bad. We're going to have a mild winter. But inevitably, there's going to be a snowfall. And it's going to fall at probably the most inconvenient time. You're going to need to be driving someplace. And the roads are going to be slick. And, and you start sliding back and forth. Or, or maybe you go into a ditch. And, and in those moments, our first thoughts are not boy, I really need to consider my sinfulness because that's what's causing these things to be this bad. Our thoughts are, oh, I can't believe this inconvenience. But really, what the Bible calls us to do is to consider ourselves. Let the difficulties of the world in which we live be a catalyst to self-examination and repentance. Showing what our sin has brought about. And then finally... We need to make sure that we do not do what Paul condemns in Romans chapter 1. Turn with me into Romans chapter 1. We'll end here. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This world that we live in exists to point us to God. But what do we do? Look at verse 24 and 25. After saying how 
humanity, thinking that they're wise, became fools. They began worshiping um, mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So God gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served what? The creature rather than the creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. We, you know, I think particularly in our world in which we live today, there is a big emphasis on environmentalism, being green, focusing on, um, on all these different types of things. We talk about the fact that, that we live on Mother Earth. Listen, it's very clear that the Scripture calls us to careful care and stewardship of the world in which God has given us. We should not be cavalier. We should not abuse this world in which we live in, but neither should we worship it. And so we need to understand that as we enjoy the world in which we live, as we care for it, as we seek to minimize the negative effects of the dominion that we have, even though we're still corrupted by sin, we can do things to try to keep this world a better place, realizing that God is reconciling all things through Christ, those in things in heaven and the things on earth. But let us never worship the creature more than the creator or have the creature replace the creator. We can enjoy and care for this world, but we must do it as we do all things to the glory of God. So I think this helps us understand a little bit about how we ought to view the world in which we live in, the environment in which we're placed, the ecological implications of the gospel and the scriptures. God has given us this world we use it for our needs and His glory. We're to care for it. But it is not our God. Only the Lord, He alone, is our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find in it today. May we take this challenge from Your Word. May we seek to rightly relate to the world in which You've created. Father, may we not abuse this world. May we care for it. But may we never worship it. And Father, may we give thanks to you that our only hope from the corruption of this world is found in Jesus Christ alone. We pray all this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.